Father, we thank you that uh, you reveal yourself to us uh, through your scriptures, uh, but especially through the Lord Jesus. We thank you that uh, you have sent him. He came in the flesh to make you known. And we pray as we look at this next uh, part in Revelation that we would see Jesus uh, more clearly, we see you more clearly, and that might cause us to, uh, like all of the, the creatures and, and the people gathered around the throne in heaven, to fall down and worship you. Pray that you might do that for us tonight by the Spirit. Amen. I wonder how many of us know right now we are in a fight. We're in the thick of a battle. You might not feel like it here on a lovely Sunday evening on a long weekend, in a beautiful city, in a peaceful nation. Um, But make no mistake, we are in a fight. Not for AFL or NRL premierships, or for Rugby rugby World Cup that England are no longer in. Uh, This is a spiritual fight. Um, Here's how the Apostle Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says, For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. We're in a battle. In Australia, we are not very attuned to spiritual realities. But go to other places in the world, you know, go to Africa, South America, it's just normal. And the Bible is actually very clear that there is an unseen battle going on in the spiritual realms. We just can't see it with our eyes. And as we come to this part of Revelation tonight, um, we're going to uh, look at chapters 12 to 16. But especially in, in chapters 12 to 14, this becomes quite clear. Satan's, Satan and his cronies, they wage war against God and his people. And if it's true that we're caught up in this spiritual fight... Well, it follows that we should know about it. We should know our enemy. We should know how to fight. And particularly so because there are huge eternal consequences. And although Jesus has conquered Satan and evil at the cross, um, in Colossians 2, 14 and 15 there, it tells us that Jesus has disarmed the spiritual rulers and the authorities by the cross. He disgraced them publicly and he triumphed over them. Yet despite this victory, Satan still wages war. He's been dealt a fatal blow, he's about to die, but he's kind of in the death throes. And he's trying to take down as many as he can. And if you haven't been here the last few weeks as we've made our way through this book of Revelation, um, I just want to give you the lowdown. Um, This letter of the Bible, it's a pretty full-on letter, as you would have been listening. Um, uh, There's all these visions that Jesus gives to John, uh, the Apostle John, they were given to him at the end of the first century AD. And it's written in a very particular way, a particular genre. It's called apocalyptic. Lots of imagery, symbols. Um, so you can't read it literally. It's more like a picture book. You've got to try and work out what the meaning is. Uh, neither can you read this, this book as a straight line through history um, because the events that happen in it aren't consecutive. They're not one after the other. There are flashbacks in time, sometimes to creation, sometimes to to the exodus, uh, uh, sometimes back to the cross of Jesus. And as we look back at these different events, it's it's just giving different angles of the same events rather than a straight line. Um, 
but particularly there are a lot of events that are spoken of in the last days. That's the time we live in now, between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, his resurrection and his return. Um, but here's the main point of the whole letter. It's to encourage followers of Jesus from the first century to today and, and, and until Jesus returns to persevere. It's to encourage followers of Jesus to persevere, to keep going in their Christianity despite the persecution that we face. Uh, and it's no different really in chapters 12 to 16 that we're looking at tonight. Uh, so in chapter 12, if you've got your Bibles there, come we're going to start there. And in chapter 12, we come across a fight between a woman and her child and a dragon. So you'll see there in verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven. Now take note here, it's a sign, it's a symbol, it's picture language, it's not literal. Uh, and there was a woman. Now who's this woman? As you read on in verse 2, you see that she's pregnant, uh, she's about to give birth out um, in, in verse 5, uh, a son comes out and, and is a male who's going to shepherd all the nations with an iron scepter, you read there. Um, with so much of the imagery in Revelation, it's all about what's been happening in the Old Testament. And John is picking up on that. So who is this male who's going to shepherd all nations with an iron scepter? Well, that's what King David spoke about in Psalm chapter 2, hundreds of years before um, about God's coming king who's going to rule over the world. He's going to come and bring judgment and, um, and, and be victorious. And so this son who is born is actually speaking about Jesus. The son is Jesus. And so if, if this son, if this child is Jesus, does that make the woman Mary? Um, hold on to that thought for a moment. Uh, because in verse 3 we're introduced to the dragon. Uh, not a cute and friendly one that you can tame. Uh, but one more like spirit. <coughs> The Hobbit. A great fiery red one, it says. Seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems. Diadems are just crowns. Um, he's a very powerful and scary being. And there's no mistaking his identity. If you look down in verse 9, there we're told that he's called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. So who's the dragon? Well, it's Satan. Uh, it says there too, he's the ancient serpent. Ancient serpent. I wonder if that reminds you of Genesis chapter 3. And so here's this, this serpent, this, this dragon. He's been waiting around for the serpent crusher to come. He's going to be born of a woman. I know that's some of the background of it. And in verse 4, we're told that this dragon stands in front of the woman as she was in labor. Now, this is one scary midwife, isn't it? Um, now I think we might get Elliot up at this point and he can sketch this scene out for us um, no, just kidding Elliot <laughs> he did such a great drawing the other week but, oh, maybe we'll get um, but anyway this dragon um, Satan is, is kind of hanging around while this woman is, is, is in labour she's about to give birth and he's waiting there so he could devour this child uh, we're not actually given the details here of what happens as Jesus is born. Um, we can uh, perhaps join the dots from other parts of the Bible. You know, when Jesus was a toddler, Satan had a crack at trying to get him then. Um, you might remember back in, in Matthew chapter 2 that King Herod issued a decree to kill all the boys under the age of two because he'd heard that a Jewish king had been born. Uh, but what happens is, is Mary and, uh, and Jesus kind of fled 
They flee Israel just in time and, and Jesus survives. You can bet your bottom dollar that the dragon, that Satan, was behind that. And we see it more explicitly as well in Matthew chapter 4, uh, where Jesus is, is led out into the desert, um, into the wilderness, and there Satan tries to stop Jesus going to the cross. He's trying to snatch away this baby. The dragon tries to devour Jesus, but before he could, well, Jesus goes to the cross, he dies, uh, and he's caught up to heaven, in, uh, caught up to God in heaven, it says in verse 5. So the dragon has missed his chance. Um, now, the woman sounds very much like Mary, doesn't she? Jesus' mum. But if you look down in verse 17, we meet the offspring of this woman. It says there in verse 17, the offspring of the woman are those who keep God's commands and have the testimony about Jesus. Now, this woman can't just be Mary here. Uh, Mary isn't the mum of every follower of God. Remember, verse 1, it's, it's talking about a sign. The woman is a sign. Well, she's a sign of the church. She's a sign of God's people, um, the Old Testament people of Israel, the New Testament people of the church. All together, they are all symbolised by this woman. Um, additionally, the imagery of this woman in verse 1, if you have a look there, um, the imagery, she's, she's clothed with, with the sun and the moon under her feet with 12 stars. Um, in Genesis 37, Joseph, one of the, the 12 sons of, um, uh, uh, of Isaac, Joseph has a very similar dream about his descendants. He has a dream about, about the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowing down to worship him. He's the 12th star. Uh, and so the, the image of this woman symbolises the church. Yeah, they're, they're the descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, the woman symbolises the cosmic beauty of God's people as you know, radiating with the sun and the moon under her feet. Uh, it's talking about the church here. Chapter 21 in Revelation, it, it talks about the, a, a woman there, the bride of the Lamb. So the woman here is, is, is the church, all of God's people. The son is Jesus, the dragon is Satan. And in verse 6, um, yeah, the dragon couldn't touch the child, he's gone up to heaven, and so what he does is he pursues the woman on earth. Um, she's fled out to the wilderness where God has prepared a place for her. Um, he feeds her there and it says for 1,260 days. Now this woman fleeing to the desert um, uh, should be giving us uh, illusions of Israel's exodus from Egypt where God cared for them for 42 years. Uh, perhaps even the early church being pushed out of Jerusalem in the first century by persecution, fleeing into the desert where God is going to protect her. Um, 1260 days, um, it's not very long, three and a half years. You, you've probably seen other places in Revelation times, uh, time times and a half, three and a half years, um, 42 months, all the same period of time. And what we see with numbers in Revelation uh, is that they're symbolic. We've seen that seven represents God and perfection, wholeness and eternity. Three and a half then, do you math half that? It symbolises incompletion. A period of time that will come to an end. Now if seven is eternity, three and a half is just a period of time that will, will finish. And so this time period that the woman is out in the, in the desert indicates that the church is out there suffering for some time. Um, but not forever. Uh, but during that time she's out there, God will be providing for her. 
Uh, as we keep going on, Satan, he, he lost his chance to kill Jesus on earth. Uh, so he takes the fights up to the gates of heaven itself. So up to verse 7, and we see that, that a war breaks out in heaven. In one corner is, is the chief angel Michael and his angels. Um, Michael is a figure who's come up already in, in Daniel chapter uh, 7, 8 and 12. In the other corner is the dragon and his angels. Um, but in verse 8, Satan is defeated, he's, he's thrown out, cast down to earth and his angels with him. And then heaven breaks out in song in verses 10 to 12. And they sing because Satan has finally been defeated. And if you have a look at that song... The centrepiece here is that Satan was conquered by the blood of the Lamb in verse 11. That's how Satan is defeated, by the cross of Jesus. And this is just great news for heaven. They're partying, they're, they're breaking out into song. But it, it's, it's bad news for the church on earth. Have a look at verse 12. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. You know, they can, they can celebrate. Woe to the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you with great fury because he knows he has a short time. Now, Jesus' death and resurrection has defeated Satan. He's lost the fight, but he's not dead yet. He nearly is. It's more than a flesh wound. Come back, I'll bite your legs off for any of you um, Monty Python fans. But Satan only has a short time to live. The arrow, you know, it's pierced Small's heart. You've seen that scene in the in the Hobbit. Um, you know, he crashes to earth once he gets the, gets the um, uh, gets a spear in his heart. He crashes to earth into the village of Dale. He's writhing around in agony, and then he dies. The devil is back on earth for just a short time. He knows that his days are numbered, three and a half years, but he still keeps fighting. And who's he fighting against? Well, verses thirteen to eighteen show us. He's now going after the woman again and the rest of her offspring. As Satan here is gunning for the church, he's trying to destroy it in what time he has left. But God provides for her, he protects her, uh, he loves his bride. Now the point of this chapter, chapter 12, is that Jesus has won the battle by his death. But Satan is still out to try and destroy the church. It's eternally safe. But they're not going to be pleasant years in the last days, in the days before Jesus returns. And the persecution that comes the way of the church isn't from a literal dragon. It might be cool to imagine, but it's just literal. It comes as Satan uses evil governments and authorities and powers and false religions and false teachers to persecute God's people. And that leads us into chapter 13, where John sees these two beasts. Uh, one beast comes up out of the sea, verses 1 to 10, and a second beast comes out of the land, 11 to 18. And both of these beasts, they're given authority to persecute God's people. Uh, let's have a look at the first beast, shall we? Um, he looks very much like the dragon in chapter 12. Um, ten horns, seven heads with more crowns. Uh, he's meant to look like, 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 um, like Satan. Uh, it talks about the four different beasts there. Um, those four different beasts are beasts that Daniel saw in his vision in the Old Testament. Um, but here, um, Daniel saw four separate beasts. Here they're all kind of rolled into one. 
Uh, so this, this beast looks like a leopard with a lion's mouth and feet like a bear. Um, you can read he had great power that was given to him by the dragon. Now this beast coming up out of the sea, um, he represents earthly empires that rise up against God and his people. It's not speaking about events um, happening only at some future time. He's talking about things that are happening right now. In the time ever since Jesus ascended into heaven, since Satan was cast down. Uh, in the first century, this beast was Rome. They had a very powerful army. They would come up out of the sea and they, they would conquer. They controlled the whole Mediterranean Sea and all the land around it. Um, verse 3 talks about one of the, the heads on the beast had a fatal wound that healed. Now, commentators think that this refers to Emperor Nero, who attempted suicide, um, but he failed. He came back and he greatly persecuted the church. But through the ages, the beast represents any authority that stands against God. Any authority that stands against God. That's who the beast is. And behind those authorities is Satan himself. He gives his power to them. Now, there have been many of these beasts throughout history who speak out against God and persecute his people. Roman emperors, Stalin, Hitler, Al-Qaeda... Verse 4 goes on to show that this beast is actually popular. The whole earth was amazed and followed him. They worshipped him. They were sucked in by him and, and, and deceived. Uh, let's go on to the second beast in verses 11 to 18. This one comes from the land. Um, this beast has two horns like a lamb, but it sounds like a dragon. Um, now later in Revelation, in chapter 19, this second beast is called the false prophet. Um, chapter 9 and verse 20. And what this name suggests about this second verse, is the false prophet, is that it's about religion. Now a true prophet leads people towards God. A false one leads them away from God. So you can think of this beast as kind of a, a worship leader. A satanic worship leader. He leads people to worship the first beast we read, to worship the, the state, to worship these, these authorities. And he does great miracles before people. But lots of power, and he deceives people. Um, and what this beast does is he puts a mark on the hand or on the forehead of his people in verse 16. And unless people have this mark, well, they can't buy or sell stuff. Now, what is this mark? We're told in verse 18, the mark is the name of Satan or his number, 666. Um, it appears to be some kind of mark that stops Christians buying and selling stuff. Um, we saw this already happening to the Christians in the first century in Smyrna, in chapter 2, verse 9. There, there are economic sanctions that were put against them because uh, they didn't uh, bow down to Caesar. Um, people have made all sorts of suggestions in for what this 666 means. Does it stand for Emperor Nero? Uh, does it stand for me? I've got six letters in my first, middle, and last names. Uh, am I the devil? I think so. Um, some people have suggested it's about credit cards, that, that they're from the devil. The old bank card had three Bs on it, which some thought were three sixes, uh, and that the only way to buy and sell stuff in our world is with a credit card, uh, and so credit cards must be from the devil. Um, one of the problems with trying to calculate what this number stands for is that it doesn't really fit with anything with anyone. 
Uh, what people do when they try and work out who it might be talking about here is, uh, if they want to say someone's from the devil, they'll try and make uh, 666 fit their name. If that doesn't work, they say, oh, we need to put uh, the title with it, so we say um, it's Caesar Nero. Um, if that doesn't work, uh, they use the Greek or Hebrew or Latin languages to try and make it work. And, and even some then say, they no, shouldn't be too fussy with the spelling. You can fudge that a bit to try and work out who they are. Um, but like every other number in Revelation, we're not really meant to try and calculate who is this one person. It's symbolic. It's not about one particular person, but it's about anyone who's doing Satan's bidding. Anyone who leads people away from worshipping God. And they've got Satan's fingerprints all over them. So where then does this number come from? I think about numbers again. Seven is God's number. And six, well, that's very close to number seven. Uh, the idea here is that it's trying to resemble God. If you take a step back and compare the imagery of the beasts uh, to Jesus, you actually see quite a few similarities. Uh, just listen to some of these comparisons. Both you know, the beast, remember the one with the, with the head, uh, and Jesus, both were kind of slain and came back to life again. Both the beast and Jesus do great miracles. They have followers with names written on their foreheads. Have a look at chapter 14, verse 1. God's people have their names written on their foreheads. Um, the second beast and Jesus have two horns. Both have authority over tribes and languages and peoples and nations, you'll see in chapter 13, verse 7. Both are worshipped. So these beasts are actually a parody. They're a parody of God and Jesus. They try to mimic God. They deceive people into worshipping them or worshipping Satan rather than God. Remember at this point that, that Satan's name literally means deceiver. He wants to do, he wants to deceive people. And so Satan will even disguise himself um, as members of the church. He'll work through uh, Christian or supposed Christian leaders. And we've seen in our uh, studies this term in Galatians and, and in Titus that there are all sorts of false teachers that are going around the churches. We need to be on the lookout for them. Uh, in, in 1 John, chapter 2 and uh, 18 and 4, 3, uh, John there speaks about the spirit of the Antichrist who is at work in the world right now. That is Satan going about, doing his work, trying to, uh, to deceive people. So don't fall for fakes. Don't get sucked in by counterfeit gods or worthless idols. Don't get sucked in by the promises that this world offers because they only lead in judgment. The devil has workers both outside and inside the church. So don't be fooled. So what are we to do then? What should God's people do in the face of the beast and the authorities that are against God and the false religions and false teachers around us? We're to endure and to stay faithful. If we're thrown in prison... So be it. If we're killed, so be it. Have a look. Chapter 13, verse 9. If anyone has an ear, he should listen. If anyone is destined for captivity, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword, he will be killed. 
This demands the perseverance and faith of the saints. Yet God doesn't call us out of the world, away from persecution as the dragon and his beasts rage on. He calls us to faithful endurance. He calls us to be wise, to see that Satan is doing his best to deceive us. But we know he can't win. He won't win. Because Jesus has already won. And we see our confidence in this in chapter 14. Join me there. John looks again in verse 1. Another vision here. And he sees Mount Zion in heaven. And on that mountain is a lamb. And with the lamb are 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Um, the beast, we saw, marks people with his name. So God does as well. But despite all the dragon and the beast are doing on earth to ravage the church, God's people here are standing for <coughs> Every single one of them. The whole number. 144,000. Remember the other week we saw it's just referring to all of God's people. God knows every single one of them. He will help them to remain faithful. And we see that they burst out in song because they're secure with God. And what a lovely little picture this is amidst the, the imagery of dragons and beasts. You have God's people safe and secure singing their songs. Next, three angels go flying overhead in the sky. Um, these angels, they go and announce judgment. The first angel is carrying the gospel message. Um, it's available one last time before the end comes. Have a look in verse 7. Here this angel goes flying out. He spoke with a loud voice. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The right response to the message of the gospel as it is proclaimed is to fear God and give him glory. To worship him not the dragon or the beasts. And the time's running out. The second and the third eagle, uh, angels go, um, go out. They tell us that the coming judgment means God's wrath is here and that everyone who faces the beast, um, sorry, everyone who, who, who worships the beast will face God's wrath. And now this is, is a very troubling scene because it's talking about hell. Hell is real, it is nasty, and it's eternal here. Have a look. See, these are the words of Jesus himself. Have a look in verse 9. A third angel followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is mixed full strength in the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur, in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image, or anyone who receives the mark of his name. Friends, this is a really difficult thing to hear about, isn't it? To read. There's a God's word here. And no one likes to, to, to hear about hell and the people will be going there. So as we read this, now we should be having tears in our hearts. This is a devastating thing to read. And no one likes to hear about hell. Um, they do if they think it's going to be a never-ending party with their mates. 
But that's not the picture that Jesus gives here, is it? It's real, it's nasty, and it's eternal. And as we've seen what God is like, this is actually the right and just consequence for our rebellion against Him, for our sin. God is just in doing this. And all of us actually deserve to go there. We all deserve judgment for our sin. But our only hope is washing in the blood of Jesus. My friends, as we grasp the reality of hell, it'll help us understand much more deeply the gospel message. The message of grace that God offers us. Now as we, we, we sit with how awkward that is, how horrible it is, we'll appreciate God's grace in the cross so much more clearly than we do. And as we fathom the contrast between heaven and hell, they'll, they'll never be resting in hell, but, but heaven is eternal rest, says there, the end of the chapter. As we fathom the contrast and as we consider the cost that God went to to save us from it, that will give us great encouragement to persevere. Great hope of eternal rest and blessing in verse 13. But it will also give us great urgency and persistence to tell our friends about Jesus. To be like the first angel there, declaring the eternal gospel. To fear God and give him glory so that they will be spared eternal torment. The rest of chapter 14 goes on to speak about one like the Son of Man, verse 14. Again, picking up the imagery from Daniel chapter 7 here, it's talking about Jesus. Uh, the judgment day has arrived, and, and he goes and heads out with his sickle to begin the harvest. And goes to gather the grapes for the great wine press of God's wrath, verse 19. And the wine, that, like the grapes that he gets, the, the wine that, that comes from it, it symbolizes, it's pretty graphic, the blood of God's enemies. If you have a look in verse 20 there, the amount of the blood is staggering. It's as high as a horse's bridle, flowing out for 290 kilometres. That's from here to Canberra. That's a lot of blood. God's judgment is pretty serious stuff. Chapters 15 and 16, they actually continue with the judgment being poured out. Um, but like we've been seeing all along, with each new vision, uh, the time frame is reset. Now, chapter 14 ended with everyone dead, you know, the blood um, flowing out. Chapter 15 begins with angels who are going to be bringing God's wrath upon the earth. You know, people are back alive again. We've gone back in time here, back to the time in which we now live, between Jesus' resurrection and his return. So in chapter 15, verse 1, another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven appears. And here there are seven angels with the seven last plagues and seven bowls. And as these plagues are poured out, it says there that God's wrath will be completed. Uh, now as you glance over the plagues here in chapter 16, um, they're pretty similar to the trumpet blast we saw in chapters 8 to 9. All of the cosmic stuff going on with the sun and the moon and um, water turning to blood. Um, but where the trumpets back in chapters 8 and 9 were warnings of judgment, and they were the warnings, the trumpet sound of warning, here the bowls are the judgment. 
Uh, there's many similarities to the plagues of Egypt as well, if you wanted to, to follow that up. Um, but the first five bowls um, are about God's kind of present judgment for all those who are following the beast. Um, it's not about judgment at the end time, but in these last days. And sadly, as that judgment is poured out, and the suffering that these bowls bring, uh, it results in blaspheming God's name rather than people turning to God in repentance. Because they suffer, they curse God rather than cry out to him for forgiveness. Uh, the final two bowls in verses 12 to 21, um, they, they speak about that, that last day, the final judgment to come. Um, those bowls aren't talking about human history in the world in terms of time, but at the end of the world. And here Satan assembles his troops for a final attack on God's people at a place called Armageddon. Now Armageddon is one of those words that kind of taken a life of its own. Um, Armageddon out of here is how some people like to think of it. Um, there's connotations um, uh, about you know, nuclear war and uh, a last battle that's going to be fought. You know, there's the movie by Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck uh, called Armageddon, about the end of the world is coming. Um, in Hebrew, Armageddon means mountain of Megiddo. It's a real place in northern Israel. Uh, it's mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament, and uh, it was the place of several important battles. And this place, uh, the mountain of Megiddo, um, it's, not actually, it's not actually a mountain there. Um, it's a gap in between mountains. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, this, this place became known as a place where the righteous Israel were attacked by evil nations. Uh, some people think that the final battle, that, you know, the final fight will, will literally take place there. Um, but if you read on in Revelation, the battle doesn't even happen. Jesus throws, we'll get to it next week, Jesus throws the beasts into the lake of fire. He, he kills all those who are gathered to fight and he binds the dragon. Um, seems a bit strange, all these forces assembling for a final battle and it doesn't even really happen. Um, but it doesn't happen because the battle has already been won. Jesus is already victorious because of the cross. His blood has been shed, sin and death and evil have been defeated. Uh, there's no great war at the end of time. So the seventh bowl is poured out in verse 17. There's lightning and thunder and, and a massive earthquake, similar to when God appeared to Israel on Mount Sinai um, after they came out of Egypt. But with this seventh bowl, God finally pours out his wrath and then a loud voice comes from the throne of God. Have a look there in verse 17. This is, um, uh, this is important. A loud voice comes from the throne of God and... and what it says is actually the same words that Jesus himself said as he came on the cross, as he breathed his last. It says, it is finished. It is finished. All over Red Rover. God's enemies have been judged and enter hell. God's people have finally uh, entered the blessing and rest in heaven. But the battle, do you see there, was won as Jesus died on the cross. But there is going to come a time when Jesus does return and it really will be over completely. So where are we at? 
At the present time, the church is at war. Satan and his beasts are on the offensive. Uh, it's not going to be forever because the war... Um, uh, yeah, not going to be forever because the war is ending because it's already been won. So how do we stay in the fight? The constant refrain in Revelation is to persevere. How do we stay in the fight? Patient endurance and faithfulness to Jesus. And because we know the end, because we know the past victory of Jesus, it means we can have total assurance and real hope today. Jesus defeated the dragon the beasts at the cross at Calvary. Satan knows that his days are numbered and so too are our days of suffering. But we can live with certainty and hope. We stay in the fight by persevering. We also stay there by knowing our enemy. So recognise the dragon. Recognise the beasts. Satan will try and deceive us. He'll use all of his resources, evil tyrants, corrupt governments, uh, false teachers and religions. And as Satan's followers are already deceived by him. But don't let that be you. Keep your eyes open. Keep your mind engaged. Keep your heart and, and its propensity to worship things other than God. Keep it open to scrutiny. Keep the testimony about Jesus, the message of his gospel, pure. Love theology, love God's word, and, and allow that to lead you to godliness. Stay in the fight too by praying. Pray for our government. Pray for freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Pray that, that our government doesn't follow the dragon but pursues justice and the good of society, that they would care for the weak and vulnerable. Staying in the fight also means going on the offensive. Not taking Satan down yourself, because you know, Jesus kind of got that covered. But fight for those who are trapped, who are deceived by Satan. Have a heart of compassion for them. Because you know where they're going if they don't fear God and give him glory. We're talking about here genuine love for your neighbour. It means stepping out of your comfort zone. Sharing the gospel. How the resurrection of Jesus rescues us from the eternal torment of hell. Living for this world, worshipping anything other than God, is only going to end in one destination. So let the eternal gospel be on your lips. Pleading for people to worship the maker of heaven and earth. To come and find rest in the strong arms of a slaughtered lamb. Friends, if you're not sure where you stand with God tonight, but you'd like to stand with him, you'd like to be washed in the blood of Jesus and be part of his people who will spend forever in eternity in paradise with him, please talk to me tonight. Don't leave here without doing that. If I'm talking to someone else, I give you permission to push him out of the way and come and talk to me. You've got something far more important than they probably have. What is life for in these last days? Well, it's not for you to bury your heads in study and selfish ambition or to fill your holidays with pleasure and worship with yourself or family. Life in these last days is the time for salvation. It's time for people to find life in Jesus. The church is at war and we're engaged in it. 
We know it's a war that has already been won. So find your confidence in the victory of Jesus. Stand firm in him, stand up for him. Fight for your family and friends who don't know Jesus. And as you fight, take your courage from the risen Lord Jesus who has secured a place for you. I'm going to close um, by reading some of Ephesians chapter 6. So if you want to turn your Bibles with me there. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armour of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. This is why you must take up the full armour of God, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having prepared everything, to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with the truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armour on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take the shield of faith, and with it you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. Earlier in Ephesians, it talks about Jesus has already won the battle. But here at the end, it's saying the fight is still on. So take up God's armour. It's the armour of God. All of this imagery here as well is from the Old Testament. In Isaiah and the Psalms. Our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of <coughs> The church is at war. You're at war. Hopefully tonight you've realised that. The battle is won, so stand firm, faithfully endure. Satan will attempt to take you down, so be prepared. Watch out for fakes, counterfeit gods and idols, and worship the Lamb only. And boldly declare the good news of our risen King, so that many more can join in the songs of heaven. Friends, uh, we do each week. I'd love to hear some of your questions Gregory? Um, a question about Beast uh, chapter 13. You said that they were picking up on January, looking at the four beasts in January 7. Yep. Um, the whole point of those beasts is that they're in, like, be wrong, but I, the way I think they were, they had power, but that power was under God's power, and the God was in control. Yep. No, even though it didn't look like it. Yep. Uh, here we have the dragon giving these these, these power. Yep. Um, I'm just having a bit of trouble reconciling the two. Yep. Because where does the, the devil get the power to yep. in the first place? And yep. yeah, why are they different? Um, that might be a good question to be asking in your growth groups uh, to look at Titus 3. Um, focus. I uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, in in Romans chapter 13, it talks about how every authority is given its authority by God. 
Um, and so uh, even Satan himself, the authority he has, is authority that is um, uh, subsidiary to God. Um, you know, in, in Job as well, you see that Satan is only allowed on the leash as far as God says. Um, so even though here it's, um, uh, it is the dragon who gives authority to the beast, it's God who ultimately gives any of that authority to, uh, to Satan. And I'll only go so far. God's in control. T? Uh, why is it that this period, the three, the three and a half years or days now, why is it that it has to be uh, unpleasant? And why is it that there has to be suffering? Mm. So in the period between Jesus' first coming uh, and his return, which we don't know when that's going to be, why does God allow suffering in that time? Is that the... Yeah. yeah. Um, why does he allow the church to be persecuted in that time? Yeah, not just the church, but also... also yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> part of what God is doing is, like C.S. Lewis... Um, he, he, he says that uh, suffering is God's megaphone uh, to a deaf world. Um, that the suffering is meant to, to get people to question, what is life about? What am I here for? Is there something bigger, more important? And so, um, so God uses the, the suffering and stuff that we go through in life um, to point us to him to show that uh, he knows what it's like as his son has entered in uh, and, and suffered greatly himself. Um, but he has answers that it's not always going to be like that. And so that three and a half years, the, the time between his first and second coming, um, you know, that is only a fraction of time compared to eternity. Uh, and so what God is wanting to do is people to turn to him. Uh, and we saw that a number of times through, through the passage that um, as uh, as the, the bowls are poured out in chapter 16, um, people blaspheme God rather than repent and give him glory. So God is wanting them to turn to him, um, but they're rejecting him. Uh, and so uh, why is there suffering? God wants it to point people to him. Uh, for Christians, um, you know, go and have a look at um, Hebrews chapter 13. Um, talks about God, you, for Christian people, he uses that suffering to discipline us, um, to, to train us to, to be more Christ-like and to trust him in our suffering. Um, and so God's got a couple of different purposes going on there. Cool. Okay. Yeah. But it's all under his, um, under his control, under his watch, um, and he is using it to, um, uh, to bring about glory for us as we turn to him. Friends, let me pray, shall we? Um, it'd be good to keep having conversations about this over supper. Um, and uh, there's a few good books up the back there as well. Um, speak about suffering, and um, it'd be great to uh, grab some of those to read over the summer. Well, let's pray. Uh, our Father, as, as we've seen tonight in your word, uh, the battle has already been won by the Lord Jesus. So we thank you for that. We thank you that this can give us great confidence. Uh, that even though Satan might try and attack us and deceive us, uh, we can stand firm because of what you have achieved. 
Uh, Father, we, we do ask that if we haven't, um, uh, if we haven't been, uh, if we haven't put our trust in you, haven't washed ourselves in your blood, we pray that you might lead us to repentance, that we might find forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Father, we do ask that in this battle you might help us to stand firm, Help us to keep looking back to the cross, to keep trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, and keep looking forward to the day when there will be no more suffering, when Jesus returns. Help us in the meantime to speak boldly about Jesus. Help us to speak graciously about hell. Help us to speak joyfully about the eternal life that you have on offer for all those who come to you. And as we fight, Father, help us to wear your armour. Help us to not be deceived, but to stand firm in the power of your spirit, of your word for the gospel by us. Amen.